Well, good morning. My name is Sam Caston-Smith, and I'm an assistant pastor here on staff at Rio Vista, and I'm also the, the head of school. Um, this morning, we're continuing on in our study of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And if you've been following us in this second letter, one of the things that, that you see that's weighing on Paul that Pastor Tom has spoken about is this division that has settled in to the church of Corinth. And there's a failure to give the benefit of the doubt and to trust Paul's motives and to trust his heart. And we find in the early going of this letter that this is thoroughly crushing to Paul. 2 Corinthians is one of my favorites of Paul's epistles because it's there that you, you get a picture of Paul's humanity, of his hurts, that he's, you know, that he's like us. He has clay feet. And there's, there's a, a very real sense, in, and when we read the Bible, we tend to want to take guys like James and John and Peter and Paul and lift them up because they're kind of these figures and you grew up and they had the little you know, oh, holy things going around their heads and they had the easy life like they just walked into cities and said, I'm here to preach the Gospel. And everyone went, yay! And that's the furthest thing from the truth. Paul loved his church. Christ's church. All the churches that he had planted. He so desperately wanted people to gain an accurate picture of who Jesus was. So much so that he would go from town to town being driven out and stoned and, and, and chased out and mocked and ridiculed. I mean, it's like really read the book of Acts. It's again and again and again. And he just cannot stop singing about how amazing this Jesus is. And he goes into the city of Corinth on his second missionary journey. And he stays there for a year and a half pouring into these people and pouring into these people and pouring into these people. And now in response, after just laying it all out for them and loving them wildly, He's hearing things like, Paul's not legit. He doesn't care for us. He doesn't love us. He's got faulty motives. He's in it for himself. And Paul is crushed. He begins 2 Corinthians in chapter 1 saying this, that the pain of all of this, of all that he's endured while he's been in Asia, wondering what's going on, caused him to despair of life. This is the Apostle Paul. And what he's saying there is, I don't want to wake up anymore. It's too painful. It's too much. I, it's, it's crushing me, do you understand? And the reason why he gets up again and again and again and again and again and again after all these trials, after all these hardships, you find it in chapter 1. Right after Paul says, it was so bad that we despaired even of life. 
He then takes you and says, but we serve a God who raises the dead. And not just at the end when we're in our graves, but now. He takes all the pieces of our lives and our relationships that are dying and withering away under the power of sin and death that just wither away in our marriages and in our jobs and in our relationships. And Paul is saying, the God I serve is a God of resurrection. He breathes His power of resurrection into all that we do. And so I might see right now all around me death. This church that I've poured into, it just feels like it's slipping away and dying. But I serve a God of resurrection and new beginnings. And though this is crushing, do you have anything in your life that is so crushing that it causes you to wake up in the morning and say, I'm done. Come Jesus, like I am done. I'm tapped out. Remember, press on. If you're despairing, you're in good company. Peter, Paul, Elijah, Moses, you're in good company. But what made their lives flourish and prosper and joyful in the midst of the pain is they knew they served a God of resurrection. And they pressed on trusting that He would bring something beautiful from the mess. And that's what we're going to see with Paul today. You know, when I first started going to seminary, I had visions of grandeur. I I still have visions of grandeur, but... Back then I thought, I want to be a pastor. Like in my mind, I would never say anything like this to people. But in my mind I thought, I want to be a pastor of a megachurch. I want a TV ministry. I want a radio ministry. I want to do all these things on such a huge, huge scale. It'll be wonderful. And then God graciously made me an assistant pastor. And the headmaster of a really tiny school And I found out, holy cow, this is hard. I I have no business being in a mega church like at all. Because even the slightest little bits of conflict sink me. When I feel that the enemy has a foothold anywhere in my ministry, it's overwhelming to me. When I see people fighting, when I hear people complaining about one another, when I have to have the conversation with parents that their kid can no longer come to school here, or that their kid has a learning disability, or I have to fire someone or let someone go, or you name it, all those things that are part of ministry that I have, it makes me go home to my wife and say, I can't handle this anymore. It is too much. The amount of pain, the amount of conflict, it's too much, man. And my wife, who is an amazing priest to me, always points my eyes to the risen one. And you know, in all these battles and all these things that sting like crazy in the moment and all of the the upside down turmoil, 
pushing on and realizing that we serve a God of resurrection and that in all the death that God places around us and the dysfunction that He is calling us to be agents of resurrection to speak life and forgiveness and grace and mercy that when we do that faithfully and we don't always do that faithfully but when we do on the other side of those conflicts is a picture of something that is unbelievably, remarkably beautiful. And it is so hard to press into. It hurts. You know, I almost got up here this morning and started my sermon this way until common sense got the better of me. But I was almost going to... I want you to imagine that this is the beginning of my sermon. Walk up. And I say, hello. Congregation of Rio Vista Community Church. It's with a heavy heart, but I feel bound by my conscience to tell you that as a pastor, as a man of God, I can no longer follow that man. I will not be a part of Tom Hendricks's ministry. I do not trust his character. I do not trust his theology. I don't think he understands the gospel properly. And I think he's in it for himself. I'm getting eyes of people who want to charge the stage right now. Like, <clears throat> this is why it was good to change that. I asked Pastor Matt, should I do that? And he says, you might want to bring a, some change of shorts for people. <laughs> I said, no, let's not do that then. But he's, he's the opposite of that. I mean, this man has poured into me. He's poured into my wife at sacrificial cost. He's poured into our marriage. He's poured into all aspects of my life. And so imagine if he were here sitting in the front row as much as he loves me and he's sacrificed for me if I just swept him out at the legs and then planted all sorts of seeds of doubt and the congregation and tried to rally people against him, which I know y'all are all like, go away. But imagine that it succeeds. That's the pain Paul feels. And you know what Paul does? He does the same thing I know Tom would do. Even though everything in your flesh when you've been wronged wants to say, drive them into the dirt. I'm getting my revenge. How dare he undercut me? How dare he bring me all this pain? Tom's concern would be the same as we're about to see from Paul. His concern would be for you. What is this going to do to our church? What is it going to do to our unity? What is it going to do to our ability to advance the gospel here in South Florida? He'd feel hurt. He'd feel crushed. But his concern would be for you. So Paul starts this section, this passage saying, now if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Everybody, a lot of people said, and they came after him with clubs, you know. That's enough. He's been shamed. So you should rather, and hear this, coming from somebody who's been so grieved and wounded and lost sleep and has no peace. So you should turn rather to forgive 
and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Can you imagine that? You've been wronged by somebody like that where it just hurts. Paul is saying, remember Paul knows the voice of Jesus saying to him, why are you persecuting me? Paul was responsible before he came to Christ for tearing up churches. He knows firsthand the intense, amazing mercy of God, right? That's why he cannot stop when he's despairing. He cannot stop because he remembers what Christ has done for him. He remembers that this God who has shown him so much mercy, man, what is it to show mercy? We should be the most forgiving people because we're the most forgiven people. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for Him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Now I remember when I, when I first started at, at Knox, there was a story, and this is a true story, I was talking with Dr. Gage about this last night, but there was a student who went to Knox, which is a Presbyterian seminary that affirms Calvinism and the Reformed faith, and it's got all these doctrinal distinctives, which are different than some of the other churches. And so there's this really wonderful evangelical church and school that's in our community, that's a wonderful pillar of our community, but they don't share the same theology. And so the student took it upon himself to print up pamphlets denouncing this church's pastor as a heretic. And he went to the church on Sunday morning and stood outside of the doors handing people pamphlets of why their pastor was a heretic. Putting him under windshield wipers and, and the like. And it caused quite a, a stir in this church. And then that student fell ill. Had to go to a hospital. And nobody came to see him except one. It was the pastor of that church. The pastor that he had wronged. The pastor that he had accused of being a heretic. The pastor that he had tried to undermine to his congregation over stupid things, you know, came and prayed over him and defended him to the seminary and protected him. And that act of grace binded that church and the seminary together. You know that pastor was awarded an honorary doctorate by the seminary later for his service and ministry. Do you know that a, a former professor of that seminary now teaches the pastors at that church? All because one man said, I have been so wounded, and yet God has shown me incredible mercy. I'm going to show that mercy. And resurrection happened. Beautiful things happened. Life came to that situation. And that is what... Paul in this situation is calling us to because he's looking to somebody who from the cross enduring the pain and the nails and the mockery and the scorn from the cross 
can look at his enemies and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's the kind of radical forgiveness and mercy that we're called to. And so Paul goes on, he says, anyone whom you forgive, I, I've already, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it's been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. Hear that. For we are not ignorant of his designs. Arrogance and division are Satan's playground. He thrives. If he can get you pitted and convinced that someone else in the church is your enemy, that they're out to get you, that they're trying to undercut you, he has won the day. Because everything that you see in that person's actions and their words and everything they do, it's going to color your impressions and you're going to think they did it because they're out to get me, because they're evil, because they're insecure, because they're nasty, because dot, 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 fill in the blanks. And the watching world watches the church chew one another apart and shoot our wounded rather than be merciful and lifting up and embracing and comforting. And the number one reason why people say they want nothing to do with Christianity when I have my family interviews across the street is because they've been wronged by the church. They don't look at the preciousness and the beauty of Jesus and go, I want nothing of that. It's because they've seen us shred one another. Because we have to protect our pride. We have to be right. And Paul's example here is, man, I've been wronged to the point of despairing of life. Grieved. Hurt. Man, oh, everything in me wants to be vindicated. But do for Him as Christ has done for me. Forgive Him. You know, when, when we let conflict linger in the church, it colors everything. There was a great a cartoon, a funny cartoon, where the Pharisees are, are mocking Jesus. You know, they hate Him, right? And so then there's this moment where Jesus is walking on the water and the Pharisees' headline, because their hatred colors everything, is Jesus can't swim. <clears throat> and that's what we do. That's what we do in church and politics and work and families. And Paul is calling on us to let the things that are dying and broken and disheveled and, and falling through our fingers stop and die to your own pride. Let the power of resurrection come and breathe life into that. Be willing to die to your own self-interest so that you can restore something broken into something beautiful. He goes on and he says, when I came to Troas, remember uh, what happened at the last letter. So Paul is a mess. At this situation with Corinth is so bad that he says that it would be too painful for him to come to Corinth in person. And so he sends Titus with what he calls a letter of tears. And he's desperate for them to understand how much he loves them, all of them. How much he sacrificed for them. And he sends Titus. And then after Titus goes, he's sitting in Troas and he has this amazing ministry, right? Where he's preaching the Gospel. And all the doors are open for him. And he's sitting there going, I have no peace. Where's Titus? 
How did they receive it? Are, are we good? Is the relationship healed? Is, is the church okay? I, I don't know what to do. And he has no peace. And so because he can't find rest, or as Brother Titus and trust, he took leave of them and goes on to Macedonia in search of Titus. And you can relate to this on a more ridiculous scale. You ever take out your phone and you're in the middle of some kind of relational mess and you send the text message that's going to correct it all, you know, that's, that's brilliant, and it's going to solve everything, and you hit send, and it goes, and then you sit there and watch your phone waiting to see the ellipses come up, like the three little dots. Why isn't she responding? She must be really mad at me. There's no ellipses yet. And the, the wait, the waiting is so terrible. It can be like minutes. I, I'll say to my wife, he hasn't responded. It's been 20 minutes. For Paul, this is weeks, months. And so he's finally like, I got to go. I got to go find Titus. I got to go figure out how this went. And the Bible, thanks Paul, doesn't tell us how Titus was received. And he doesn't need to. Because where he goes from this verse is absolutely wonderful. He doesn't need to know. He moves on from here and he says this, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. And if you read that in the English, it's kind of like, well, that's nice. Jesus is leading us in a triumphal procession. But what we don't understand is in the Greek, that word is thriambeo. And it's a formal noun that describes this massive, massive, big, big deal parade for a general or an emperor who has just had a massive, massive victory. And if you go back and you read the historians, Plutarch and so many others, they write about these because this, if you got awarded with one of these, it was a big, big deal. Thriambeo. It meant that if you were a general and you conquered an army, when you came back in, for one day, you were allowed to wear the crown of laurels. You were allowed to wear the regal robe. You were in a chariot with four horse-drawn carriages. And you came back to Rome as a conquering hero, dressed as a king. This is before the emperors. Dressed as a king for the day. And the emperors continued this. But you were only allowed to wear that regalia for one day because they were so afraid that someone would try to seize the throne. They would, the people would be so worked up about this conquering general. In fact, Julius Caesar, the first of the emperors who tried to seize the throne, was killed because he wore that regalia for more than one day. So what did this procession look like? It's kind of important to understand this. Well, what would happen is after they defeated an army, they defeated an enemy king, they would come back. The Senate would say, hey, we're going to have a thriambeo for this general. And they would come back. And before they came, people would bring back all the spoils. They would bring back the new animals. They would bring back spices and flowers and plants. They would bring back all kinds of wonderful things and they would line the cities with them. They would put them all over the trail where the army, returning army is going to march 
so that as they came through the town and they marched on top of these spices, the aroma would go out to the crowds. They would burn incense so that this was like a big celebration. They had rolling stages that they would go through the crowds and on the stages would be actors and they would reenact the battles to show how the enemy had been thoroughly humiliated. And Plutarch, who's a Roman historian before Christ, tells us that on the morning of the third day, curiously, on the morning of the third day, the, king, the general's soldiers would come through in full regalia, marching, and they would get the crowd worked up into a frenzy, singing to the god Bacchus, Triumph! 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 And the whole crowd would begin singing, Triumph! 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 And then coming around the corner would be the general with his crown and a slave holding a golden crown above that and in his regal attire and in the chariot and the four horses. And he would be going through holding the staff and the people would go absolutely berserk at this conquering general returning. And behind him, to bring more honor and glory to Rome would be the conquered king. And the king would be forced to hold up his crown, walking in shame and humiliation behind the horse-drawn carriage. And to his left, they'd be holding his shield and his armament. And on this side would be somebody who is holding up his regalia and his robes. And then behind him would be the army of the vanquished. Lots of them carrying crosses because they were on their way to the temple of Jupiter where they would be slain. And the other ones were on their way to the slave trade. All for the glory of this general. And all the slaves carrying all the spoils of war. All their gold. All their silver. All their bronze. All the things that were precious to them coming along, being laid down to Rome for the glory of this general. You look in, in, in Rome and you'll see there's these arches all over the place. And these arches were built when someone got a triumbeo. And they were, they're actually monuments to these triumphal processions. So this one is the arch of Titus. Titus was the general who went in and burned Jerusalem to the ground and destroyed the temple and, and demolished it in 70 A.D., just as Christ foretold. And you go inside the arch of Titus and you see these friezes. The first one shows the Jewish captives coming back. And what are they carrying? They're carrying the contents of the temple. There's the golden lampstand, 75 pounds of pure gold being carried by these slaves. You see the, the, the trumpets that they would blow for the worship in the temple. You see the altar of incense. This stuff is forever gone from the temple. And these slaves would carry it in. And then on the other side of the arch, you see Titus coming with his four horses and drawn carriage with the soldiers marching before them. And so I want you to stop for a moment. And by the way, you see the, you see the big one of this that looks like the Arch of Titus in Paris? It's not an accident that it's called what? The Arche de Triomphe. Right? That's my best French accent, sorry. But that's what it's, it's referring to is this triumph. Triumph! Triumph! That Napoleon built. Except there's a problem. When we read what Paul is saying, he says, wait, 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 wait. Christ always leads us 
in triumphal procession. Well, no, 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 wait, 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 Paul, you, you, got, you got it wrong. You see, because we're the soldiers. We're the ones that have gone out and got the victory, right? Like, we should be ahead of you. So, like, we, we should be leading Christ in his, his horse-drawn chariot. We're, we're in front, you see, because you, you don't understand, Paul. It's, it's the conquered people that are, that are behind him. So that doesn't make sense. And Paul's saying, no, that's exactly what I mean. You are the vanquished army in Christ. You come behind Him in all of His glory. You come behind Him with the crown saying, I am not the one that should be ruling from the throne. Here is my crown, God, given to you. I am not going to fight like the rest of the world. Here are the weapons of this world that I lay down for you. Here is my regalia and everything that brings me honor. And oh, by the way, here comes all of my wealth and my gold and my silver and everything I lay it down to my conquering king and general. Everything is yours, God. Everything. And when Paul tells us he leads us always in triumphal procession, that's what we're to understand there. And that's a hard sell for Christianity. Come sign up. You get to be in the army of the vanquished. Lay down your crown. Lay down your weapons. Lay down your regalia. Lay down your wealth. Lay down your freedom even for the sake of following after the One to whom you want to bring glory. Let all of your weaknesses be on display to the watching world for the sake of bringing Him glory. That's what Paul wants you to understand. But the beautiful thing is that our general, our king who goes in this triumphal procession before us walked with the crown. I mean, think about how perverse his triumphant procession was. He got a crown, but it was a crown of thorns. He got a regal robe, but it was a regal robe of shame and our mockery. He got the adulation of the soldiers and all calling out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! And it was in utter scorn. The One who leads us in procession leads us because He blocks and shields us all from the shame and the power of sin and death. He goes to a cross for us for the power of resurrection. And on His train, on the robe of His majesty, come all the conquered armies behind Him that He will exalt to glory and give an inheritance that's everlasting, and all the stuff that they lay down will be repaid to them in infinite measure. He takes the scorn. He takes the ridicule. He takes the death. He takes it all to shield His people so they can find safety in His wings. And the upside-down truth of Christianity is this, that the humble are exalted and that the conquered are more than conquerors. That in this Christ who we follow in triumphal procession, when we say, I'm yours, I'm conquered, I surrender, I give it all, I will follow you. Where can I be defeated? Death has no power over me. 
My inheritance is unshakable. My value, my worth, and the sight of the only opinion that matters is worth the cost of God's own Son. Are you kidding? What else could I want? What can man do to me if God loves me that much? But if you want to be triumphal, you first have to surrender. It's the upside-down way of the cross. What's His is ours. And if we follow after Him, we carry our crosses. We call ourselves servants, even though He calls us friends. We're willing to lay everything down for His sake. And here's the deal. If we are all the vanquished army, we have no reason to appeal for glory Everything that we have is by His goodness, mercy, grace. All the inheritance that we have is a blessing undeserved upon us. So when we look like Paul, or like the pastor I mentioned earlier, at a grievous wound, something that somebody's done that is so awful that it leads us to despair, we are merciful because we've been shown mercy. We are loving because we're wildly loved. We do not base someone's value on performance because our value in the eyes of God is not based on performance. We're free to love. We're free to to offer up our reputation because we're secure now in the eyes of Christ and God. Our weaknesses are on display for the world to see so that God's power in our weaknesses can be manifest. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. Being saved, present tense, still in a process to become more like God. Like when we come to Christ, everybody in here I hope understands that you are saved from the penalty of sin in Christ. Hell has no part of you after you come to Christ. But there's a very real struggle in which you're still being saved every day from the power of sin in your life. From the power that calls you back and says, no, come back to the old ways of doing things. It's so much better. There's quick relief. Come. Come back to your addictions. Go back to your habits. Go back to the ruts that ruin your marriage. Go back. Go back. The world whispers that, right? And God is saying, you're the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being being saved. Gaining power over sin. And among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. And then he asks this all-important question. Who is sufficient for such things? Who can do all that? Who can jump in the army of the vanquished and say, Lord, take it all? Who every day can lay it all down for His sake? Who, who can do that? And Paul's going to answer his own question in chapter 10. In the red letters, Jesus speaks to Paul and his words are captured in chapter 10. And this is what Jesus says to a Paul who's falling short on strength to keep pressing on. Jesus says this, who's sufficient for this? My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your 
weakness. Let go of your pride. Let go of your need to be right. Be weak. And watch my power of resurrection flood into your job. Flood into your marriage. Flood into your family. Be weak and watch my strength. Watch my strength. We want to do everything on our own. But Jesus is saying, no, you want to be an aroma of Christ. Well, how, how do they, he's speaking of all this, the, remember the spices and everything that are on the roadway? Well, how do they give off their scent? They're trampled. They're driven into the ground. You, you want to be like Christ. That's what it is. It's sacrificial love. It's enduring hurt for the good of everyone else. It's hard. Man, that's hard. But the aroma of Christ is altogether different from the world. You don't want, like right now, do you, do you smell that? Does anyone else smell that? No, because there's no smell. You only smell something when it's different, right? If there was something strange, you'd go, what's that smell? Something's different. You want to be the aroma of Christ. That's what will strike people. They'll go, that's different. That's different than everything else I see in this world. That reminds me of, that smells like Christ. You know, Steve Brown, who's a radio preacher, used to say to his callers all the time, in a real deep voice, you smell, I can't even do it, you smell like Jesus. Which is not a, that's not a compliment I would pay to women, by the way, just <laughs> going to throw that out there. You smell like a first century carpenter. But the reality is, you are to be the aroma of Christ. And that's hard. You know, when I first came to Christianity, somebody showed me Jesus. Man, I was having a bad time in my life. I was blacking out from drinking probably four nights out of seven. Addictions, relationships that were inappropriate. And I, wouldn't give, I couldn't give any of it up. That's... I like that stuff, but I'll take Jesus too. And I thought, man, I'm not ready to become a Christian because I still have all of this stuff. And I don't want to be a hypocrite, so I really want, I really love this Jesus, but I, I, I can't leave that. And the guy that ultimately led me to the Lord with, by the Spirit came to me and said this, you're never going to become more holy. You're never going to become the aroma of Christ by trying harder. You're never going to wake up one day and go, man, my heart desires all of this, but today I've decided I don't want that anymore and I'm going to walk a holy life. He said the key to a holy life is not trying harder. I think that's good. But the key to a holy life is loving Him more. It's remembering who He is. It's getting a picture of His power and His mercy and His love and His sweet tenderness and His nearness and His intimacy. And the more you gain an accurate, an accurate picture of how infinitely good and precious and sufficient He is, this great surprise suddenly starts happening in your life. You don't want that anymore and it's not you that accomplished it. 
It's Him. All of a sudden, by comparison, His beauty and the joy and peace that He brings you when you abide in Him and with Him, all of a sudden makes that stuff look, as Paul says, like sewage by comparison. You want to become the aroma of Christ. It's not a checklist. It's an all-in adoration worship fest and a constant desire to wake up every day and abide in this awesome Savior who loves you with infinite measure. And Paul closes out this letter saying, for we're not like so many, the peddlers of God's Word who want to get up and tell you, obey! And do this. And if you do this, then you're in. And if you don't, you're out. And you do this and ta-ta-ta. Paul comes in sincerity. Thank God. And he tells you, man, this is hard. And it hurts. And there's going to be times where like me, you despair of life. And where you cry out, God, what are you doing? And where you want that pound of flesh. And where everything in marriage and life and everything else, you just want to... But like Paul, you trust in the resurrection power of Christ to breathe new life and flourishing into all those things. Relationships and marriage and job and addiction and you name it. Coming from someone who suffered on the road to get there because I can relate to that guy. As men of sincerity commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ who also knows what it's like to walk the road of pain and sacrificial love for you. And He calls on you to be like Him. To join behind Him as the general in the army of the vanquished who takes the great defeat and triumphs over it and transforms all of it to glory if we will just surrender. That's our King. Let's pray. Father, Lord, You are so good. I thank You for Your promises that Your grace is sufficient for us. That Your power is made perfect in our weakness. And I pray, Lord, that You would give us the wisdom and the courage to open our hands, to jump behind You in the army of the vanquished, to give us the wisdom to lay down our crowns and our weapons and our wealth all for Your service, trusting that in this, even as we carry our crosses behind You, that You are ultimately leading us on a road to glory that, that by our taste of suffering that we will breathe life into this world, into the brokenness. I pray that You would do mighty things through us and for all of those in here that have that whisper of despair for whatever it might be, the desire to give up on whether it's life or marriage or job or whatever it might be, Lord, that You would remind us that You raise the dead. You bring glory to suffering. And we pray all this in the name of Your Son. Amen.